diving into data. Diving, diving, data. Diving into data with TC Riley. That's right, this is Diving Into Data with TC Riley. I'm not TC, I'm Tyler. Hey TC. Hey Tyler, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing excellent. That's the first time you've heard that intro. Yeah, it is. That was oh. kind of uh, interesting. Cool. I like it. I like oh. the uh, little techie. I went very techno-y with it. Yeah, you know? no, I love it. When people think data, they think like, I don't know, yeah. computers, it's robots. G- geeky. It kind of it all, it all <laughs> folds it together. So yeah, no, love it. Works. Oh man, TC, this is like my favorite time of year because you get that massive Venn diagram of like a lot of different sports all with a big bullseye right in the middle, like at this part of October, and it's beautiful. Oh, could not agree more. This is literally probably my favorite, like maybe one to two week stretch of the year because yes, we have NFL and NBA, or, uh, NCAA football and you know full swing. We're good there. NBA season kicked off last night. A lot of the teams play their first game tonight. MLB, obviously we got the World Series. Hockey's going on too. I mean, there's literally everywhere you turn. Um, it's the only time of the year all four prof- major professional sports. I know you're the soccer guy. Sorry. Soccer's I, I, still, still going, going on, on too. Good. The champion's coming up too. Exactly. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're fine. It's, we're fine. It's, 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 it's the best time of year. This and March, right around that March Madness yeah. time is uh, kind of the two sweet spots for uh, sports. It's, uh, it's beautiful. Well, the NBA kicked off last night, and so we're going to dive in first and talk about that. Because there's a lot of stuff that happens in the offseason, TC, and a lot of data that you can dive into just to kind of evaluate the strength of teams coming into the season. Exactly. And uh, we're not going to go through the uh, the hot take uh, kind of circuit that uh, some of those larger networks like to go through. They've been doing that for months. They'll continue to do it for months. I'd like um, to go on a Stephen A. Smith-esque rant right now. Um, I'll go ahead and pop out and see you <laughs> in 20 minutes. Um, no, but uh, what we're going to do is we're actually uh, going to kind of look at yeah, some of the data perspective of it and... Um, some people might say, well, the season is just starting. You don't have any data yet. No, no, no. We are going to look at, based on previous season's data, previous things, and uh, what has changed in the off season, right. and maybe what we should expect to see in the coming year. Um, even have a couple little uh, tips and tricks around that that I use as it relates to maybe some fantasy sports, maybe a little gambling Ooh, type stuff. Nice. And, uh, the generate minute here. But uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, get, we'll get to that one. Uh, that's uh, So what, what's really interesting to me is just – in the NBA, every offseason now, it feels like there's just so much player movement. And it feels like teams just completely flip. And even though I follow all of that news kind of throughout the offseason, as soon as the season starts, I almost have to go and just check and see, like, where, where do people even play anymore? You, you know what I mean? Just to do a big refresher. Oh, yeah. Uh, last night I was watching the uh, watched the World Series game, so I didn't catch too much of the, uh, the Toronto-New uh, Orleans game, but right. I did watch um, most of the Clippers-Lakers game. And, yeah, about five different times during the game I had to whip out my cell phone and be like, wait, oh, yeah, Avery Bradley plays for the Lakers now. Or, you yeah. know, the little things like that that it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, yes, I obviously I knew, you know, Kawhi and um, Paul George and Anthony Davis. Those are the three big ones. Everyone right. knew those ones, but – um, a lot of these other ones, yeah, it, it, NBA especially, you don't really see it in other leagues. The continuity from year to year isn't necessarily a thing. And that's actually one of the first stats I kind of wanted to talk about um, was the fact that in the NBA, how many minutes are changed. That's kind of one way to look at it is um, obviously we can look at, you know, the number of points and things like that. But um, kind of the most basic thing is of all the people you had on your team last year, you know, you played so many minutes. There's so many minutes, uh, you know, player minutes in NBA season. What percent of those are brought back? You would assume continuity would lead to some good things. Um, you very rarely do you see a team, you know, kind of sh- sh- thrown together and that season they're great. Obviously, there are a couple little exceptions, but even going back to a decade ago, the Miami Big Three, when they first came together, right. um, people remember that first season. Let's go, Mavs. Um, when, uh, didn't, uh, yeah, exactly. There's a, 
a lot that went on there that it took a little time for them to mesh. It's Definitely. not something that you're naturally going to hop in and do. But um, so one of the things that was interesting to me, I was kind of just glancing through the contenders at the very top and the very bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, four contenders at the very top kind of stuck out. Um, Denver, San Antonio, we can argue whether San Antonio is a contender or not. Um, Milwaukee and Houston. All of them brought back, I think it was somewhere in like the 85 plus percent of their minutes. So you would assume, yeah, exactly. Especially considering Houston's trade for Westbrook, Um, you know, that that little uh, wild card that got thrown in there. Um, but those teams are all on the upper end of that, that they should see a lot of continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Houston, that, that one little caveat there, but um, Denver especially brought back, it seems like pretty much their entire team. I think they had one kind of minor change. Um, but then you look at the other end, and there are two teams that really stood out that, if again, if you listen to those uh, talk shows and the circuit out there, um, two teams that get brought up over and over and over is, oh, they're going to be great. They're the winners of the offseason, yada, yada. But they changed a lot, and that is the Clippers and the 76ers. Right. Um, yes, the Lakers made some changes and, you know, added Anthony Davis and all. They did make a big shakeup there. Um, not sure. They weren't a contender last year. I don't know if we'd, you know, again, we're not going to debate whether they are this year. I think they'll be due. But the Clippers and 76ers, obviously the Clippers with um, uh, Kawhi and PG coming in, that's the obvious one. The 76ers one that actually kind of made me say, oh, that's right. Um, they did make some significant changes with um, who they had rolling out there. And obviously um, getting Al Horford in there is going to be big for them. Um, but Josh Richardson, a couple of the other ones, they, they had some player movement that, um, especially deep on their bench, outside of Embiid and Simmons and things like that at the very top. Yeah. Um, I think that they might, those two teams might struggle, especially out of the gate, a little more than people anticipate. Losing J.J. Redick feels like a big thing for... <laughs> Yes, and there's a lot of those advanced stats that, um, and there's the joke when he got to New Orleans about not matching up his playoff streak, but J.J. Redick, I think it's like up to like 14 years or something ridiculous. He's always been in the playoffs. Yeah, he makes the playoffs every year, everywhere he goes. Exactly, and so there's, I think there's two things with him. One, his shooting and what he's really good at. He's still one of the best pure shooters. He's the, uh, him, Kyle Korver, those names that always pop up that always seem to be on winning teams because they just straight up knock him dead from outside. Um, Always a valuable, valuable skill there, but I think that his leadership might be a little undervalued. I think some people, when they hear J.J. Redick, they still think back to the Duke days and this kid coming out that yeah. was in, not not a bust, but he wasn't, you know, oh, he was so good in college and he's only an okay NBA player. Look back, dude's had a heck of a career. Very um, nice career. And he wins. Yeah. Probably the most important stat that there is. We can throw out everything else at the end of the day if we really want to and look at that win-loss. And he goes, he wins. So looks good for the Pelicans this year. That might help them out, especially once they get Zion back. But... Um, that, that one I think is going to hurt the 76ers against some of these peripheral stats, um, of the change that they made. Um, again, very talented team would not be shocked at all to see them in the finals or see them deep into the summer. But, um, I I would watch for the Clippers and 76ers, maybe stub the toe a little bit out of the gate. When you lose, you know, more than half of your minutes, you have more than half of your team is brand new, never played together. Um, one training camp isn't necessarily enough to you yeah. know, uh, make you all really gel. So. Yeah, you, you really got to kind of grow together throughout the season, and you'll see teams kind of start to figure it out. You mentioned the big three in Miami back a, yep. uh, a while back. It it did take them a little while to gel, and I remember Dwayne Wade, after they lost their first game of the season, said, well, I guess we're not going to go 82 and all a- after all like you all expected us to, or whatever, in kind of in a sulky type way, but just goes to show there there is kind of that learning and feeling out process. Absolutely, yeah. And you mentioned J.J. Redick. One of the other big numbers that you can look at uh, is as the NBA has increasingly become a shooting and a three-point shooting league, you can really look at the teams that have added the most in terms of three-point shooters, both in percentage and also three-pointers made overall. And we mentioned J.J. Redick going to New Orleans. New Orleans added a positive 
I guess uh, they, they netted 3.6% of positive three-point shooting percentage, which makes a big difference over the course of the season, and J.J. Reddick's a big part of that. So that's another stat that people are looking at is, okay, who brought in more good shooters from outside and who lost some good shooters? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a stat maybe even a decade ago, maybe before um, uh, you know, kind of Golden State changed the yeah, NBA really a little Steph bit. Curry, yeah, 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 re- yeah, if we're being honest, Steph Curry kind of changed the NBA in the way it's, uh, it's being shifted. But um, yeah, New Orleans is a big one, obviously getting J.J. Redick, that's a big piece of that. Um, there's two other teams up there that kind of surprise me. Um, I'm not necessarily expecting much out of either of these teams, but it'll be interesting to see how much of an indication. The Knicks and Sacramento. Um, now the Knicks, I, maybe there's an asterisk in everything the Knicks do, bless their hearts. But, yeah. uh, um, but Sacramento is one that, that is one that with the increased shooting, they were a little bit of a surprise team last year. They hung around the playoff race pretty late. Yeah. Um, and they have, a, they've had a lot of young talent for seems like a decade and just every year it's kind of a, yeah, they got a bunch of high draft picks and they never turn into anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure they're not one that when we're looking three years out or so, maybe two years out. Um, hasn't risen to that level. Kind of the same path I've see, seen Denver take over the last two or three right. years where they've gone from this, yeah, they hover around 500, eighth seed. Uh, they have a lot of young guys, but they have a stud type of question to, sure. okay, um, you know, the Joker's here to play and uh, they, they got a lot going on there. And uh, uh, now they're a legitimate, you know, contender potentially even for the one seed in the West and all. So I, I'm interested to see what Sacramento does. Um, but actually on the flip side of that, there's actually two other teams that stood out from the uh, – the wrong way uh, of that three-point shooting. And again, yeah. especially the way the NBA going, that, that's a big stat. Um, Toronto and Boston. Um, both of them lost some significant shooting. Obviously, Toronto losing Kawhi hurts um, probably you know more than just about anything. That's it. There's a lot there. But mm-hmm. um, those were two, again, b- between the Clippers and 76ers to start the year with that you know continuity piece, and then Toronto and Boston with the shooting, um, two teams that sometimes had to the way they play. They don't always rely on three-point shooting, but they do play a little bit of a scrappy game where you sometimes need those kind of you know ten-point fourth-quarter comebacks. Yeah. Um, maybe you could do that a little bit more in the last couple of years than you're going to be able to this year when you just don't quite have the same shooters. Um, so th- those are going to be some interesting stuff there. And again, I think it's really interesting and cool that uh, that's one of probably the top stats to look at year over year now is three-point shooting. When yeah. again, even ten years ago, you probably it's important, but is that at the top of the list now? So it's a really good point. Really, really good point. It'll be interesting to follow this early season uh, NBA stuff, especially just with superstars moving teams so much more often now. It seems uh, it's just it's going to be wild. It's going to be exciting. The Mavs tip off tonight. Yes, so I'm very excited. About that. Oh, Luca and KP, I'm excited. Oh, Actually, that's going, great. that's going to be the perfect little last little piece on the NBA here before we get to some stuff that. Uh, is not sports related as a <laughs> crying emoji. Right. Um, but, uh, and it's actually some interesting stuff that I've started doing, kind of looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this dips a little bit into gambling, won't lie. We're not going to make this a gambling show by any means. But um, something is the win-loss projections that are out there now. Yeah. Um, sites like 538, which is, a, if you don't know Nate Silver, he's, um, they do all types of stuff. They do all types of political things, mm-hmm. non-sports things, but kind of was rooted in sports. That's where Nate Silver came from. Um, and they do a bunch of different modeling for win-loss projections. And something that's interesting that I th- kind of encourage people to think about is that some of the and uh, the older gambling systems, the older ways that um, casinos are still kind of projecting win losses, very much based on the public, right? Um, based on some older models, you can probably find some pretty good opportunities there. And what I mean by that is. When I look through a lot of these win-loss models, again, I'm a Mavs fan. I'm a homer. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Sure. Um, 
I so I usually that's the team I look for. I glance at the top and then I kind of glance through and figure out where the Mavs are. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing a lot of these models put them around about 45 wins. You know, just a few games over 500. Looking at the bottom, you know, uh, close to 500 but above 500. Most sure. of the models sure. are saying their over under in Vegas is 40.5, which means that if they're a 500 team, they hit the over. Um, and that's one very you know specific example. But this kind of leads me to think I'm curious in 10 years how. Um, as sports gambling becomes legal, you know, more and more across the U.S., it's becoming a bigger and bigger business. Um, how do those kind of systems start adapting and taking in some of this data where these advanced, again, 538's Raptor model is one that I love. It's a player rating model that they have. Are they going to start incorporating more of these? Um, are different maybe casinos and books going to start um, going with different kind of data sets and having, you know, very different projections. You get, you know, two very different lines from two right. casinos. So again, this isn't something we're not going to turn this into a gambling show by any means. That's not the point of it. But it's just, it's this, all this advanced data that we have, this advanced analysis that we have. I'm curious to see how it starts bleeding in, not only to the leagues, but maybe some of the kind of peripheral things to the leagues, like the gambling, like the fan experiences, things like that. So it, it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, more accessible uh, sports betting in the future presents a lot of interesting opportunities and a lot of uh, data discussions that can be had as people maybe get a little bit more granular with some of the data and try to, I guess, parse apart the league a little bit more for their own personal gain. But also, like that, that's interesting stuff to, for uh, you know people like us to talk about is we're yeah. interested in the data and interested in how people come to certain conclusions. Yeah, I don't need to have money on the line to be interested in where the money is going. You know what I mean? So it, that's a great it's, point. It's, it's curious. It's it's a cool thing and. Uh, um, and with that, the last little map stat here, so second biggest jump in uh, effective field goal percentage this offseason. So I'm expecting to see some buckets. KP with, uh, has, uh, has something to do with that. Yeah, and, like uh, think. I think losing Trey Burke helped a lot too. That's what I read. So That's a good point. Yeah, uh, bringing in uh, not Steph Curry, but Seth Curry, Curry. Yes, uh, yeah. can also make a big difference for the Mavs, especially with that three-point shooting we were talking about earlier. Yeah. All right, TC, last week we talked about building management and using data to uh, better manage large-scale office buildings and things things along those lines to make smarter decisions, to allocate resources better, things along those lines. But before you can really talk about data in building management, you've got to build the building, right? Uh, And so one of the things we're seeing is data being incorporated much more often into construction projects because specifically construction tends to run behind, they run over budget, that sort of thing. So you start to wonder, okay, how can data, how can analytics, how can all of this information we have at our fingertips start to make the building process more efficient and a little cheaper and that sort of thing. So what what have you found as far as that goes when it comes to data in building projects and in construction in general? Yeah, and this was an interesting one. This was a Tech Republic article. It kind of turned us onto this one and made us look into it more. Um, and one of the quotes in there is that, you know, an average project runs 20% over the expected amount of time. So mm-hmm. 20%, you know, late on schedule and up to 80% over budget. Jeez. That's very typical. Um, and if you think about that, I, I guess that's kind of the norm in the construction industry. I think there's even some, you know, hedging of bets, um, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. around the fact that a lot of projects do go over budget. But um, I want you to think about whatever industry you work in, whatever job you work in, if you were consistently 20% late with every deliverable and you spent, uh, you know, 180% of what you were supposed to spend, um, what would that reaction be from your boss? I, I can personally say I, I don't think it would go too well for me, but uh, um, given that that's that significant, okay, there's probably some optimization that needs to happen here and, and kind of uh, we need to look at what we can do with advancing technologies, with advanced analysis right. um, to drive those down. Again, even if you it's setting more reasonable timelines and setting longer timelines, um, that's still probably better to say, hey, 
it's, you know, it's going to take us five months and it actually takes five months then to consistently say, Oh no, three months, we got this. And then, you know, you're five, six months in and you actually finish. So, um, one of the first things before we talk about uh, maybe some of the things that are changing that are going to help this, um, is to talk about probably the root of the issue. And I think construction is an industry specifically that, um, really deals with the problem of siloed data. And that's a significant issue because um, the way construction typically works is, you know, yes, a major, you know, construction management company will run these large projects and they're going to have a bunch of contractors that work for them. And those contractors are going to have subcontractors and those subcontractors are probably going to have subcontractors. It's a very tiered kind of uh, hierarchical system that it goes down. But what you run into with that is a lot of that granular data, maybe that sub subcontractor who installs bathroom rails, Mm -hmm. they have some really good data based on that and the information of how long it's going to take based on this and that and the other thing. Okay. The subcontractor above them that's responsible for all kind of installations doesn't necessarily know that. And even worse, the company above them, the main contractor that's supposed to build the entire, you know, all the bathrooms in this major project, whatever it may be, they don't have that data. The construction management company definitely doesn't have that data. We're multiple layers removed from where that data is being um, either observed, collected, housed, whatever you want to call it. Um, from the people kind of setting these timelines, setting these budgets, setting this. So I think that probably the single biggest issue we can say is that siloed data. So a solution there, oh, share more data. That's a very basic, easy way to kind of say, yeah, of of course, everyone, if you have more information, you'll be better. Right. That great. So how do we do that? That's, that's really what we're getting to. Um, and what's interesting is one of the solutions I was reading up a lot about is how some of the new technologies, I think, are going to almost not naturally solve this problem, but they're going to lend itself to a much more effective um, data capture, sharing, uploading repository model, mm-hmm. um, especially if we're bleeding into almost IoT a little bit here. But um, the emergence of 5G, as that becomes much more popular and as um, that technology really takes off and is in full force around the world, around the U.S., what we're going to see is people in the field can more effectively, maybe they're capturing data now, Mm -hmm. but now that data can be immediately uploaded to, again, databases, repositories, whatever you want to talk about, um, that can be more easily shared. So that, you know, when you sign on with a construction company as a contractor, you accept that, hey, we're going to kind of pool our data together and you're also going to get it from your subcontractor, so on and so forth. Yeah. And it's not just a guy writing something down on a piece of paper and mailing his book into the main office where it's like, (laughs) okay, what what the heck do I do with this? Right. Um, Right. It's someone using a platform, using a system, a software, that immediately is communicating and they're able to immediately see not only historical stuff, but hey, I can see right now that we, you know, are looking at inventory for, again, let's go back to those bathroom rails or whatever we're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so we're on pace with installation. They're doing good on that piece, but wait a second, our inventory's low. They're probably going to have a holdup next week because we're not going to get that shipment for two weeks. Um, And they know that because the guy is sitting there every day at the end of the day doing the inventory. And again, it's not just on a spreadsheet on his computer. It's not on a piece of paper. It's into some system that's integrated across the platform um, for everything in the project. So I I think that kind of technology, along with maybe just some of the advanced data capture, Mm -hmm. um, you talk about LIDAR drones, things like that. Some of the, the incredible technologies that are out there around, especially surveying and kind of land development. Um, that's going to be really interesting to see how all those play together because as it's one that this data ecosystem, you can almost see it building and growing Mm -hmm. as we move forward with technology and what we're able to do with it. And it's going to be interesting to see. I think some of those problems, again, are naturally going to be solved. But more, I'm interested to see who kind of takes the lead on those different within the construction industry to go up front and say, 
hey, we have the ability now, we have the technology, we have the tools. Now let's put a process and a system in place to implement this, get real-time results, um, immediately make adjustments on the fly. I think that's where we're going to see those you know, incredible efficiency gains that are going to get away from that 20% overtime, 80% over budget um, number and really help us drive towards a more maybe efficient construction industry. It's one of those things where you have to endure the headache of getting something like that set up, which admittedly is not going to be easy to do, right? Like not it, at all. It, it's going to require people to adjust, people to learn new technologies, new systems, things like that. But it helps avoid those headaches on the back end, right? And if you can more accurately bid out construction projects and you're able to more accurately project what your spend is actually going to be, then you end up with happier customers in, on the, in the long run, happier subcontractors in the long run, happier everybody on these projects, really. And so, again, it, is it going to be a struggle on the front end? Of course it is. But it's probably worth it in the long run. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and it's 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 going to be, there's even a little bit of a, let's say, a, a people issue there where, yeah, you're going to have to require four different layers of management, you know, or of contractors even sometimes, um, some of which they don't always necessarily love each other, this and that, just from some friends I have in the industry. Um, <laughs> but they're going to they're gonna have to work together because at the end of the day, I think they'll all kind of realize that, hey, yes, this is going to be a pain at every level for us to implement something like this. Yes, it's going to be frustrating and we're going to have to rely on these other ones. But at the end of the day, all of you are going to be more efficient. Um, all of you are going to be more likely to hit your deadlines. You know, you're going to have less problems with your boss, for lack of a better term. Again, whether your boss is a person or a, you know, a higher up company contractor. Um, and I think that you're going to see some adoption, um, maybe begrudgingly, but still uh, kind of quickly adopt a lot of these things as they come into play. Absolutely. Well, we have one more topic to cover, TC. We're going to step aside, take a quick 15-second break, and when we get back, we're going to dive into how much data you really need for a project, and we're going to explain the term data paralysis. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back here in 15 seconds. Today's content is brought to you by MarketScale. Do you run a B2B business? Nobody creates more podcasts, videos, case studies, and blogs for B2B marketers like you than MarketScale. Ask us how we can help you today. All right, we are back here on Diving Into Data. I'm Tyler Kern. He's TC Riley. TC, what's our last topic today? So what we're going to talk about is everyone's heard the term big data, big data, big data. You're inundated by it. What about small data? We've forgotten about small data. Oh, poor so, small data. Yeah, I know. As so, a small guy, I appreciate small data. <laughs> see, as a big guy, I also appreciate small data, so it's okay. It's really nice of you. Yeah, it is. It's uh, very accommodating to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> this all came from a great Harvard Business Review article I was reading a few weeks back, and it was talking about how um, again, big data is the flash term. Everyone wants to do it. Every company wants to implement big data and use big data. Um, really, for a lot of companies, when you're talking about big data, you're talking about projects with, I mean, millions and millions, sometimes billions of data points. Um, probably some of these really high complex projects are things that are going to require a team of data scientists to take a year to go through all this and do this. What I'm going to kind of take a step back real quick and encourage you to do based on this article, go check it out. Um, but also... Think about what you can do with small data, with smaller projects. Not every analysis and everything that can be incredibly impactful to your business has to be something done by a team of data experts over the course of a year. Hmm. You can find a lot of wins with low-hanging fruit, with smaller projects, with a smaller team, with less effort and less time. And there's a couple things that you need to do to really um, kind of drive into that. Um, first, you need to make sure you get people involved. You need to follow a disciplined approach. You need to make sure you know what you're doing and you follow it strictly. You need to train people on it and you need to define an area of expertise that's kind of unique to each person on your team. 
Um, those can be steps for big data projects, but those apply to small data projects too. Again, just because uh, maybe you only have 10,000 points of data, mm -hmm. um, you can still analyze that. You can send one person on a, you know, a week-long mission to look at um, maybe some on-time delivery. Uh, here, we, we deal a lot with content here. Um, right. On-time delivery of content was one of them we just did recently. Again, one guy, one week, just the data that we had collected, which was you know a significant amount, but it wasn't a absurd, mind-numbing amount of data. Um, and he was able to find some great inefficiencies in our just our internal processes, things we're kind of cleaning up and able to improve upon. Sure. Um, and so for a lot of the companies out there, again, a lot of our audience in kind of the B2B space sometimes probably hear about this data stuff and they think at a very high level, man, this is like a Fortune 500 company that has a thousand people on staff that can, you know, throw this kind of resources at these projects and tackle these incredible mountains. Um, it's okay for a smaller company to tackle the little hills too. Um, sure. Don't, don't be afraid of the amount of data or the amount of effort. Um, and this kind of ties in with our term of the week that we're doing every week now, um, data paralysis. Mm -hmm. um, what data paralysis is, it can go one of two ways, but at the end of the day, what it means is um, the availability of data is kind of uh, is scaring you. It's preventing you from actually taking action. Um, and the two main ways that that happens, one, it's primarily too much data. So again, with when you have too much data, you almost don't know what to correlate. You have 15,000 points here and you're like, well, I don't even know where to start with this. I don't know what I'm trying to relate, what I'm trying to get at. Um, the other piece is maybe you're even scared to take action based on the analysis. You don't trust the analysis. Right. Um, and on that front, I would also say, don't be scared to sometimes trust your gut. Um, this is the data guy saying it's okay to trust your gut every once in a while. Sure. Keep in mind that data and analysis are things like trends and projections, what should happen based on the numbers. It doesn't mean something's going to happen all the time. Um, you know, it, we see plenty of times sports are a great example where the team that was mathematically supposed to win doesn't always win. Something that's expected to happen doesn't always happen, and that's okay. So, um, again, not saying just throw the data out the window. Please don't take it that way. Right. But I am saying don't be – if the analysis is really kind of running contrary to what you really think is right, don't be scared of that. Don't. It, it's sometimes okay to kind of hedge your bet and say, well, I, my gut is really saying go this way. Maybe we don't fully dive into this new approach. We dip a toe in the water and see how it goes. Definitely. Um, definitely. But anyway, that kind of ties in with these big projects. I think a lot of small companies get data paralysis. They see, they hear about these projects, they read about them, about these things that these major, you know, Microsofts and the Googles of the world are doing, and they think, well, we can never do that. Forget it. We're just not going to use data. We're not going to try. No, no, no. Don't, don't. Yes, they're playing in a different ballpark. Don't even, you know, they're way over there in left field. Don't worry about that. Exactly. Figure out what your team can effectively do. Identify what you're really good at and what's really important to your business. And maybe even if that idea you come up with is still too big, to, requires too much, okay, well, maybe take a step back. So again, our content creation process, we're trying to optimize all this. Maybe we can't overnight just snap our fingers and make that better. But maybe with you know how we book videos or podcasts and things like that, or how we schedule those things out, maybe that's good enough to where we can do that and make the little steps. So everyone out there, don't be scared of the term big data. Um, you probably have that small data and use those small data projects, make it bite-sized, make it something that you and your team can handle and effectively execute on. Smaller, more manageable goals. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't be scared of it. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with the show either, TC. I don't think so. I think this is fun. Let's do this again. I will uh, won't be here next week on a client visit, but we'll be back the week after. We'll figure something out, but uh, we'll have more episodes of Diving Into Data coming for you in the coming weeks. But until then, I'm Tyler Kern. I'm TC Riley. We'll talk again soon. See ya. See ya.